Welcome to another episode of Livable Launch, the podcast where we dive deep into real estate adventures and stories and uncover what new projects are launching direct from the people shaping the future of the market. I'm your host, Matthew Slutsky, and today we're venturing into the high-stakes world of buying and selling development sites with a very special guest. Joining us is Jeremiah Seamus, the visionary founder of Collier's Private Capital Investment Group, a name that has become synonymous with the success in the real estate sector. Jeremiah is not just a leader, he's a trailblazer who, in 2023, masterminded the successful disposition of the largest residential site in Eastern Canada. This monumental achievement is a testament to his hard work, strategic thinking, and unwavering commitment to excellence. So, whether you're a seasoned investor, a real estate enthusiast, or someone looking to buy a new home, or just someone curious about the stories behind the skyline, this episode promises to be enlightening, inspiring, and full of valuable takeaways. Let's get started. Hello, Jeremiah. Welcome to Livable Launch. Hi, Matt. Really happy to be here. The burning question on everyone's mind right now, what are you seeing with land values in urban Toronto right now? Are, are, are we seeing land values skyrocketing? Are they dipping? Are they staying status quo over the last three years? What are you seeing? That's a great question, Matt. Well, development land specifically in the cities is you know made up of typically a redevelopment land as there's not that many parking lots anymore and we peaked in 2021 that was really the peak of development land sales in the gta you had um effectively 8.1 billion dollars of land sales in the gta 534 transactions it was a high point for toronto um it was uh effectively about 13% higher than the last highest day or year rather, which was in 2017, with only 500 transactions and 7.2 billion. Um, and, you know, since then there's been a correction in the market. You know, we have seen a correction really play out in the early uh, quarters of 2022 and really showing up in the data in Q3, Q4. 2022 and so we call it right now we're in about 16 months into a correction in the market and we define correction as a 20 percent change in volume so today um, we are sitting on 52 percent lower dollar volume amount from last year so that year-over-year decrease of total total dollar amount um, is really effectively what you're seeing as the market take a, a complete pause is, is that the market taking a complete pause? You're saying obviously the number of transactions are down, the value of the transactions are down, but is the value of land going down as well? Are you seeing deals that you know would have been in 2021 going for 100 million are now selling for 60 million or 50 million? Yes. Yeah, the value of land has gone down. You know, you had a high point for valuations in kind of the third, fourth quarter of 2021. Um, you had some significant transactions there into the 300, 400, and even one example in the $600 a buildable foot um, range. And Just for people who are listening who, who aren't in the market, what is the definition of buildable foot? Like, How does that get calculated and what does that mean? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, a great question, Matt. It's a metric that we use to value land on the potential square feet of every site of land. So you effectively have say, you know, 10 square feet of land and you can build 
you know, 10 square feet on top of it. You would value every one of those square feet at a dollar amount. So it's the future potential of that land in which you value. So that has to do a little bit in Toronto with understanding what the density can be on the site. Many of the sites that sell, they typically will trade on an assumption of density that will be, you know, anywhere in the range of 10 to 20% of that will be the final outcome of the zoning. Because in the city of Toronto, we have this really funny zoning bylaw that has not been updated since the 1980s. So the quote, as of right density, which is more common in cities like New York, um, you know, in Manhattan, for example, you know, you can look at any parcel of land, you know exactly what you can build. And you can build higher if you buy some of the air rights. But in Toronto, every piece of land is negotiated with the city um, because these bylaws are, you know, set in the 1980s still. So the metric of, you know, $300 per buildable square foot means that 100,000 square feet of potential density on a site means that the land is worth $30 million. It is, is that taking the, the buildable foot from what the seller thinks th- someone will be able to build on it? Or do you, do you have builders who somebody says, I'm going to get a lot more density. They're able to go a lot heavier because <laughs> they think they're going to be able to, to score more density on that site. Well, you know, that's a funny story because we come across that quite a bit and owners, you know, have this idea of what can be built and what can't be built. And that causes a lot of problems with, you know, the subjectivity of, you know, really someone who's not in the real estate market day to day and just having their cousin, their uncle, their friend tell them, oh, you can build X, Y, Z. But ultimately what matters is what is defensible and what you can actually understand and get built today. So most of the time, our assumptions are based on professional urban planners. Uh, These are consulting planners who work alongside the city to get sites zoned. And then, you know, there is a difference between selling a land, you know, development land that is unzoned versus development land that is already approved. So most of the metrics we use are based on already approved land. The ones that are unzoned is based on a best guess estimate within you know, 10 to 15% error of uh, what it'll ultimately be zoned for. If we hit this height in 2021, in let's say the core, what are you seeing the builders doing who bought at that, who are now sitting, like they're going to have to sell obviously for a lot more per square foot than someone who's buying today at a much lesser value on land. Like what are they just sitting on the land waiting for it to come back um, during the next cycle? Yeah, that's actually a great question because you really, there are varying degrees of decisions that these developers are making. Now, some of these developers that have bought in that time period zoned land, some of them are already in the market selling condos. Now, the absorption of these new condos, these pre-construction type condos is lower right now. So the assumption of holding the land and actually selling the condos is going to take a little bit longer. People are doubling sometimes tripling the time period in which they assume they would sell for. Now, there are examples of developers who bought in you know the range of 2019 to 2021 who bought unzoned land, and they were assuming that they would be zoned at one point and be able to have a financing takeout, right? Because uh, generally speaking, banks do not want to uh, finance unzoned land. Um, Generally, that is the non-bank lenders, the private lenders out there who make up the majority of that market. 
So you have, uh, you know, delays from the city in getting a lot of these, these sites zoned. Um, you might have delays from the developer sometimes. And ultimately, if someone is stuck with no financing in the near, in the near term, in short term rather, um, and they're looking to exit that land at values today, then you're going to deal with you know a major change in in what those land values are, and there would be you know obviously a loss on the equity that was put. A really good example, you know, you were asking about land values is <clears throat> at the height of the market, there was a site sold in the entertainment district for two hundred and ninety dollars a buildable foot. It was just resold um, about two months ago for one hundred and sixty dollars a buildable foot. Wow. So you had effectively a 44% change in the value of that real estate. Now, it is important to note that that land had a smaller inefficient floor plate. It had some heritage retention. So, you know, the developer that sold it, or rather the developer that bought it, you know, was dealing with cost increases since the time period that the original, the seller of the land uh, had bought it. When when the original owner bought when the original buyer bought it at two ninety a square foot buildable, or were they in a, was there other bids near that? Like were were they inexperienced and just throwing out some crazy numbers when they were buying it, or um, did was that actually what other people were were looking at as well on that site? No, they were definitely one of the more aggressive buyers. They had a return metric that was lower than some of the local builders and. You know, generally what you'll see, you know, say, you know, I sold this corner downtown Toronto once and we had 17 bids. You know, it was a $40 million site. There was a lot of people interested in this because it was right on a corner next to the subway. Uh, big tower, three, 400,000 feet unzoned at the time. Um, and <clears throat> you see when all the bids come in and we, we prepare these things called bid matrices. Uh, and we will put together the differences on each value and who the buyer is, what their experience is. It's almost like a report card, you know, based on my experience selling land over the last 12 years, you know, you start to understand who the developer is and what, what they're trying to accomplish in a purchase. In doing that, you see that some developers have a lower return metric or they assume they can sell the condos for higher. It's all just an equation of math, right? And at the end of the day, someone just has vision that they can do it differently than the other. So this site that was sold, at the time, the builder was more aggressive. They needed a lower return. They were a new entrant into the market. And additionally, this was pre-increase um, of development charges. So the city of Toronto increased development charges in 2022, prior, after uh, this developer had bought it, uh, by 48.8% was the exact number. And additionally, the financing cost for construction um, had increased about 57% and the actual construction cost increased roughly about 30%. You know, there's a metric you can get more specific, but in that time period. So you had this triple whammy of all these cost increases. So when it came time to sell the land and they had to exit the market, um, you know, you had this <laughs> cost increases for all the new buyers looking at land. So it's really a timing thing. And that's crazy. So, so a builder who, who bought a 290 a square foot 
site resold for 160 a square foot, 44% decrease. Like, how does a builder withstand that? Is that, you know, goodbye to that builder? Yeah, in this case, this developer has actually gone bankrupt. They're a foreign entity. Um, You know, they went through a bankruptcy and they had to sell off a, a number of their assets. So, you know, it's not something that you see regularly. It was a forced sale. Um, in today's market, um, we will only typically see uh, buyers or rather sellers who, you know, there's a death, a divorce, a partnership dispute, uh, or a need to sell, you know, for you know financing needs. You don't typically see someone saying, I would like to sell today for my own reasons. Yeah, and, and I will say, I mean, I actually really like, I know who the builder is. I, I really like them. They were uh, a good client of mine over, over the years and uh, always liked working with them. So that's a shame. Um, I should mention Jeremiah specializes in development land. So when we're talking about land, we're talking specifically about development land. We're not talking about your house or maybe a farm in the future. I mean, that is against <laughs> development land. But Jeremiah specializes in development land. Um, we do sell farmland, though. I was going to say that kind for of development, in, in, yeah. For development. <laughs> um, so we were really talking about the core. What, what about around southern Ontario? Are you seeing, are, are the metrics looking the same around southern Ontario? Or is it really the core that's being hit harder than the other areas? Well, you have a change right now in the market where people are looking at where can we actually get revenue. So it's difficult right now to sell condos. It's difficult to actually get that revenue coming in on a site. So in the last little while, you have you know residential mixed-use developers looking at areas to understand where can I actually successfully get a project launched and finished, built and registered. And currently, we are seeing a big appetite for what I like to call first-tier suburban. So this is, you know, call it outside of the urban core, you know, the city, but not completely in secondary markets, you know, not in the middle of nowhere. So close to transit, either go stations um, or within zones that are, you know, fairly close to a a major bus transit or a go um, or a subway stop. Those areas have become increasingly attractive because you have the condo pricing at $1,300 a square foot and lower actually being an affordable product for the market today. And if it's on transit, you know, it's quite attractive for the investor pool that is buying condos to then, you know, purchase and lease those condos out afterwards. So that has been quite attractive in the last little while. We've seen you know, an uptick in uh, parcels in that first tier suburban uh, locations be attractive. And then as for your specific question on Southern Ontario, I do a lot of work in downtown Hamilton. You know, I was first there 10 years ago. I sold a site to Brad Lamb um, (laughs) and he's since been very bullish on the area. And, you know, I sold a very large parcel, an entire city block to uh, Slate Development there too. Um, and that was in 2018. You're mentioning all the people who have been on Livable Launch. We've yeah. got Brad Lamb was the first and Brandon Donnelly right after. Exactly. So I'm following you, whenever you sell a piece <laughs> of land, I'm, I'm going and interviewing them. Yeah, and they're, they're great developers. And, uh, you know, you can see the progression of Hamilton um, in how it's been kind of this, like I would call it ambitious city, which is, you know, a term that Jennifer Keysmet mentioned. But that has been a very attractive place for developers to get in. I, I know there's a new development company uh, called Vantage 
um, that is looking at parcels in Hamilton. Um, there are a few new entrants that are also looking to build rental there. Uh, Leuna, um, a, uh, a union, has been building rental buildings there. Uh, Bentel Green Oak has a rental building there. So a lot of the major players are getting into Hamilton. I've been a big proponent of Hamilton for years. You know, I grew up in the summers outside the city and you know, I, I really appreciate that urban fabric. So there's definitely interest for Hamilton. There's interest for first tier suburban. Vaughan and Oakville have some interest in downtown urban areas within those cities. And then the east side close to Ajax Pickering has also been you know, quite interesting. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about shopping malls because I mean, we've got, you mentioned Pickering, Pickering Town Center with Center Court. Uh, Atrio, Hans Jane just launched his uh, purpose-built rental around Scarborough Town Center. And it seems to be the trend to now be building out shopping malls. Are, are you involved in that part of the market as well? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, you know, the large site we sold in Hamilton was uh, in effectively an outdoor mall. So we deal a lot with owners who traditionally have been income owners and own these retail plazas and uh, malls and they want to understand, okay, well, what is the value of my land if it were to be a development land site? Now that market has changed substantially in B and C locations. They're not necessarily as attractive to buyers today, but um, there are locations that uh, are looking to be more attractive uh, considering they're on transit, right? So Pickering Town Center, you know, that was the second largest land development land transaction last year. Uh, shameless plug, I did the first largest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Center Court guys and their joint venture group there did a, you know, an excellent job of putting together that parcel and cutting off the less used parts of the mall, keeping the more effective parts of the mall. And then they've already sold two towers, I believe, uh, for new condos there. So, you know, to your question specifically, are more malls looking at being redeveloped? Yeah, absolutely. This has been happening ongoing. There are, you know, a large amount of pension funds who actually own these malls. They now have in-house development teams. Um, you know, for example, in Etobicoke, there's a few there that they've been looking specifically at to develop. Um, the BC Pension Fund being one of them, Oxford with Yorkdale has a plan they're looking at as well. So most of these major malls are now being scoped out with a fine tooth comb as to what do we need, what do we not need. And this is a large parcel of land in a very accessible area to the majority of the community. Let's look at the highest and best use today. I've got to ask, Pickering was number two. You had the number one biggest in 2023. What was the biggest deal of 2023? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was downtown Toronto. Um, it's downtown east, close to the waterfront. Um, we sold the site to Pinnacle, uh, Pinnacle being a large developer um, across North America in San Diego, Vancouver, and Toronto. And it was roughly 1.6 million square feet. Um, they have applied for more density in the near term today. And, uh, you know, it was a very exciting project. Uh, it was very confidential at the time. And the seller decided that they would like to exit. Um, they had gone through and sold a number of the condos already. Uh, so the condos now are going to be built that were sold by Pinnacle, um, which was a big part of understanding how do you value this land, right? Because 
the sold parcels were obviously sold in a different market as to today. I feel like that could be a episode on its own about that story. <laughs> Congratulations. That's really fantastic. Thank you, Matt. Um, are transactions going up or down by volume post 2021? I mean, post 2021 was the height and then, you know, things slowed down. Are we starting to see things pick back up again or are things kind of, is it staying, staying flat? Yeah, we are still decreasing in dollar volume amount. So 2021, you know, roughly $8 billion, 8.1 billion in development land sales, 534 transactions. The next year in 2022, you had uh, 489 transactions, 7 billion in. So you had, you know, effectively this not great, not that much of a change when you looked on paper. But the reason is that development land sells in what is typically a six to nine month period. And now we're actually seeing closer to a nine to, to a 16 or 19, 18 month period. So when the initial transaction happens, or sorry, I should say the initial offer, that period from offer until closing has increased in time. And so you had 2022, still a fairly good year for transactions, but it was because a lot of those land deals had started, you know, at the end part of 2021, the starting of 2022, and they didn't really close until much later on. Or you had transactions that started in early 2021 that closed in early 2022. So you have this rolling period in which transactions, you know, continue to be um, closed. And once a developer goes, as we say, firm on deposits, um, in the US they say hard, hard money, um, that generally means that the deposits to purchase the development land become non-refundable. So the decision to close after that is almost certainly already in motion. Whereas in 2022, we started to see the beginnings of a very sensitive market at the start of 2022 in our bids. And, you know, into the end part of 2022, we noticed a substantial change. So it wasn't until the dollar volume amount of different asset classes actually changed by 20% in Q4 2022. And that's when we began to really see the true correction in the market. So if land deals start to have, start to pick up again now, let's just say, we won't actually see the results of that until 2025. Like that's when the pickup would actually happen. That's right. And we aren't seeing it happen yet. I suspect that, you know, 2024 will still be a fairly low year in terms of transactions. Um, 2023 was uh, a very, very low year in terms of number of transactions. We were lower than the 10-year moving average. So it was 3.2 billion. Our 10-year moving average is 4.4 billion. So there was over 300 transactions, uh, less than 400, roughly 389, depending on how you count. But um, a lot of smaller transactions happen, sub $25 million. Anything in the 25 to $50 million range really did not transact. Uh, there was a number of ones, but not, it was more in the greenfield land, so farmland um, locations. It was more so that the large transaction, there were still a few that traded, obviously, you know, 
I had one of them, the Pickering Town like, Center. That, that one of yours is like a, is, is a third of the of the entire year. <laughs> no, not quite that big, but you know, Pickering Town Center that was about two hundred million, roughly. Um, and so there was a number of very large transactions, a lot of sub twenty-five million dollar transactions, and everything in between did not transact. So really, I think this year is going to be a pretty low year in terms of volume. You still don't have a number of developers in the market. You have a lot of buyers sitting on the sidelines. Um, you have owners who have not completely capitulated in terms of what they believe value is, um, but it certainly has started to happen. And I think that you know there will likely be a change in 2025. It's hard to say, but one thing I do like to point to because I really like numbers in you know understanding the story and the data behind what has happened in the past. And when you look at the industrial land market in 2009 to 2016, you see a similar story playing out. Now, industrial is a little bit different because companies can choose to stay and you know effectively work through their own manufacturing distribution in kind of a pragmatic way. Whereas with housing, you have a need to live somewhere. You cannot get rid of that need, right? So it drives the deficit of housing need in Canada, which is ultimately why the pricing of, of land, the pricing of condos, pricing of housing has increased so dramatically in the last 10 years. So, but what happened in the industrial land market is a really good picture into how landowners think. In 2009, after the great financial crisis, you had a pause in the entire Toronto market. Effectively for eight months, no one did anything. And that included residential and condo sales. But as a friend of mine, Bill Gardner, who runs a development company called Gerlock said, he said, you know, in September, the sales just turned on like a faucet. He at the time was working for free developments and out of nowhere, the sales just began to happen. And I think what he was telling me at the time was the psychology of the buyer was, well, wait a second, there's all these problems in the US. But in Canada, things haven't really changed. Our banks did not go through the subprime crisis. The banks are still lending. They still have good balance sheets. We still have jobs. We didn't have a major recession. I guess we're okay. Let's continue buying. So that's what happened in 2009. But for, for industrial, manufacturing, distribution, commerce, which was driven largely by US being our biggest trading partner, completely slowed down almost effectively stopped. So the need for industrial land, you know, which is vis-a-vis -vis is similar to how development land for residential works, completely stopped. So at the time, industrial land hit a high point in 2008, 2009, but then from 2010 to 2016, that dollar volume amount decreased by 50%, in some cases 60%, and stayed low in that volume. And that was because landowners mostly in the industrial land market and development land market act the same. If they've owned this development land for a long time, say they have a building on it or you know, a retail plaza and it's got income on it, even though it does have a higher and better use, they're deciding that today, if my land was worth you know, $300 a buildable foot yesterday, and today it's worth $160 a buildable foot, well, I don't really want to sell. I might wait until 300. So that's why you have this decrease of volume. And that's why you have landowners saying, I'm going to wait until the price comes back. 
the, di the difference is that most owners are way more optimistic. They believe, hey, that's going to come back tomorrow, next year. We obviously don't know, but a good source of, of history is to see that in the industrial land market, that really took about five to six years, depending on what me which metric you're looking at. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always thought kind of the industrial as well as farmland, I mean, the, a lot of that is land banked for 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, waiting an extra few years isn't such a big deal. Whereas kind of more in the urban play, it's much shorter term thinking and people trying to move much quicker than the mindset of, of industrial and, and Absolutely. And that's why when I mentioned that residential is a need, not a want for a lot of people, why I think, you know, the land market will change probably much quicker than six years, you know, likely be in half the time. Of course, we don't know. But we do know that there is still a massive need for housing in Canada. <laughs> yeah, I think the demand is just growing and growing and growing, and the supply is just exactly not, not there. I mean, I think the next we all know the problems. three to four years is going to be a. I have no idea what it's going to look like, but it's not going to be pretty. Um, really quickly, and I know this is kind of could be a long answer, but hopefully we can keep it kind of short. But again, for people listening who aren't familiar, what's the process like for buying development land? Like. Is it a go out to a bid and there's somebody who comes in with a bully offer like you see on housing? Or is it like, what, what does that actual process look like? And where does the data come for that? Well, you know, it's a good question because there's not really a lot. There's not one right answer, right? Um, I, I always uh, represent owners, so the sellers of the land. And I help them maximize the value of their land. So, you know, in ways I'm like an advocate for landowners to protect them, to ensure they're getting the right price to ensure that they're getting maximum exposure to all the developers out there um, that are actively buying. Now we spend a tremendous amount of time figuring out who is buying, who is active. You know, we track the pipeline of all the builders and developers out there so we know when they have a need, when they don't. But for the most part, for someone buying land, they're that for the purposes of development, they're typically made up of two different types of buyers. So number one, you have the professional developers you know, say like a center court or like Brad Lamb um, or Slate. These are the ones who have a system, a process in place in which they have a full-time acquisition analyst um, and full-time planners, and they're out there searching for opportunities to buy all the time. Now, they would be contacting me and my team uh, fairly regularly to understand, you know, what are you actually putting out in the market? We would be doing the same, contacting them, uh, putting as many land parcels in possible, as possible in front of them to see what they want to buy. The second type of buyer is more of the syndicated investor. Call it the you know, speculator. <clears throat> there are a number of family offices, uh, high net worth individuals who look at land as a source of wealth and a return. And they've been right for the past 20 years. Um, in the past 25, really. And those are the type of buyers who are taking opportunistic views on buying land that could be built in the future. So today, because we have this de decrease in, in the price of land, there are actually a number of opportunistic buyers who are saying, wait a second, I've got, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars of cash. I'd like to go out and buy land at 40% off price, right? They're effectively buying <laughs> a discount, right? And so those buyers are out there and they're looking to purchase land for 
you know, call it land banking, but for the day in which it can put into production to actually, you know, be a source of revenue, right? So those are typically the two types of development land buyers we see. And then there are is, there is the third but very minority buyer who's the user buyer. So I am an office tenant or I am a hotel um, buyer builder. You know, I'm going out there to buy something to actually be used for my own specific use. Um, but so that's the first step is, you know, what type of buyer are you? The second step is figuring out what is the ge geography that I'm interested in. And that can be done in a number of different ways, but it's, you know, typically what has worked in the past is what developers look at. Is it on transit? Is it a potential for high, high density? Is it more of a medium density mid rise site? And what product do I understand? What do I want to build? So then they're going to go out and look for geography. And the third part is they're going to look at what is my budget? You know, um, we have clients who have $200 million of cash, but they're looking to purchase land sites in around the $30 million range. They don't want to put all their money into one site. And, you know, we just sold one uh, to a fund that was around the $20 million mark. And they say, you know, we want to buy two more in the $20 million mark this year, right? So they have a budget, they have a geography, they have a specific focus. Once you, you have all those understandings, uh, all that understanding within your deal book or your, your thesis, then you'll go out and you'll start talking to people like myself. You'll start driving, looking at locations, and you'll start to understand what land is actually on the market. Now, you mentioned, are there sources for that? There's not an MLS for development land, although lots of owners and brokers are putting land for sale on the MLS system. There are many sites that are, um, you know, not on the MLS system. We, you know, in 80% of the land we sell, the owners would not like to put it on the MLS system because they would like to contact uh, through us, the developers directly. And this is more of what we call a soft approach. Um, but of course, you know, we always uh, encourage owners to do a broad-based marketing approach so that you can actually talk to every buyer in the market. So th that's looking at what's actually for sale. And you know, if you think about re used homes, resale has House Sigma, pre-construction has livable. Um, and then you're saying there's not, not really a market for, there's nothing, no site available that just shows kind of all the lands for sale right now. But what about one of these people with, you know, $20 million, say, um, driving around, they see a building they really like, will they come to you and be like, find out who the own, owner of that is and make an offer? Or is it always going to, to market? No, it's not always going to market. And, you know, at one, any one point or time, you know, we have, you know, typically somewhere in the range of 20 to 40 land listings in the market. So we have, you know, a large amount of land that we're tracking. Um, some is public, some isn't, and we'll go through and talk to those buyers. I specifically track a lot of the downtown Toronto, downtown Hamilton regions. You know, for instance, in downtown Toronto, you have about 9,430 buildings. Of those buildings, you have, you know, roughly 1,300 sites that can be used for development land um, through by way of, you know, assembly or purchase. Um, so there's a lot of ways to actually get interesting data. It's typically through the brokers who sell development land. Of course, I sell a lot of buildings as well. And so commercial real estate is typically sold through the networks of the brokers. Now, 
there are many examples on MLS where these sites will go there. So MLS is a very good source to look for land as well. You know, we have a number of sites for sale in the MLS system as well. Um, but for the most part, there is no one, you know, livable in terms of where to find development land. It's the same as commercial real estate across all the asset classes. You, you mentioned all the, you know, the, the potential development sites. Are there any parking lots left? Like, are, there, are they still out there? If I think back to Toronto, when I, even when I started BuzzBuzz Home, you know, 15, 20 years ago, like, there were still parking lots everywhere that are now condos. Are yeah. there parking lots still available? I still remember that time, Matt. Yeah. I feel like we met next to a parking lot on DuPont. <laughs> um, there are still parking lots available. There's actually, in fact, two major parking lots downtown Toronto. Uh, one is owned by a pension, Oxford. And then the other one is owned by five private families. Um, both are in progress to be redeveloped into um, condos, um, both purpose-built rental or um, condo. Oxford hasn't really exactly said what they're going to do with their site yet. Um, but the other site that's across from the well um, at Spadina and Front Street, you know, has gone through a rezoning application. They're finalizing that for a... a fair amount of development land you know off the top of your head i mentioned i mentioned parking lots and off the top of your head you're like oh yeah this one has five families this one's oxford do you have like a map room that shows every <laughs> no but seriously do you know who the land the owners are of pretty much every parcel in toronto like in the urban and, and hamilton as well in the urban area and the markets i tracked yes and in hamilton as well in some of the major core areas and so, you know, it's our job as brokers to be sources of information. We're in the information business. So I spend almost all of my day talking to owners of buildings and land and understanding, you know, what pricing is, what buyers are pricing at. So, you know, I'm effectively a call it stock market of development land and building sales for commercial real estate in Toronto and, and Hamilton. And as the number of parking lots decreases, you're now having to knock down buildings to start building new buildings. What, like, is there like kind of a number of stories we're at right now? Like, you know, you're not going to see someone tear down TD Center right now, but in the future they might. Um, like, is it kind of like the, the five to 10 stories that are now being demolished for bigger buildings and then kind of working up? Like, are you able to tell kind of roughly what story number we're at? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question because it's not really, there's no one set formula. You will see, obviously, it in many cases where the land um, where the building is on will actually have a certain value. If the land value, the development land value is greater than that building value, then generally if the owner is looking to sell that, they're going to sell it for development land. But there are many cases where buyers have bought buildings and they have not been, you know, quote, for development land per se, but in the future, they become, you know, for development land because there has been a growth of, say, you know, gentrification in a neighborhood. Like a good example is where your old offices were at Queen and Dufferin. You know, that was purchased as a commercial industrial building by Hallmark. They're now going back and going through a redevelopment application because now, 10 years later, 
they're effectively looking at a market in which condos can be sold. Didn't they redevelop that already, where, where our old office was? Or did they just rebrand it and clean it up? <laughs> well, they rebranded it, cleaned it up, it and then they've gone like through the an steam, application. The, so is it called like the Steam Furnace something? Or, uh, <laughs> I don't know the exact name for it. but I think it's a lot nicer now than it was when our office was there. Yeah. But it will become even nicer in, in the near near future. Exactly. So to answer your question, when we talk about development land sales in Toronto, 80% of that land sales are not parking lots. They're just buildings that can be torn down for a higher and better use. I went on to Twitter and I asked, um, you know, who has any questions for Jeremiah? And I got a bunch of DMs, <laughs> but there was one that somebody mentioned that I, I thought might result in some fun answers. Uh, so I'll ask you, this is from at JT. There's actually no question marks, but I think he meant this as a question. <laughs> Deal stories, craziest, smallest, longest, etc. Any kind of crazy, I mean, obviously the one last year, that's a massive transaction, uh, but any other kind of crazy stories that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there are many stories, of course. I would say a really fun story is when I sold um, a building on King Street West. It's 485 King Street West. The owners of the building had used it um, for a long time for a uh, distribution of their textile uh, business. So they were actually part of the original family that had Byway, and um, they had used this as kind of this distribution. But of course, King Street had gentrified dramatically. And what happened is everyone had tried to get a hold of this owner to get this property sold. Um, I called the owner for <laughs> about three years, and I actually ended up sending um, some some gifts over there to get her attention. Um, her name was Cassell. And ultimately, after many, many years, she actually only called me back. And she said, listen, you've been very thoughtful with your information, with what you've sent me, and you know, you've really been really helpful, and I'd like to work with you. So after three years of trying to get a hold of her, of course, and, you know, sending out information, talking about the market eventually when I was talking to her, um, she decided to sell with me. Now, the fun part about this sale was that at the time, she was surrounded by th a developer on all different sides. And the developer was trying to purchase her building and um, they were offering her at the time $6 million. When she hired me, uh, you know, we came in and we did a valuation. I thought the value of the land was actually closer to 6.8 to 7.2 million. And, and she said, okay, that's good because we would like a higher value. And the buyer is, you know, unwilling to do that. So, you know, I went to the market with her site and uh, her building rather. And we contacted all the prospective buyers that are buying along King Street. As well, we did a broad-based marketing approach to actually figure out who wants to be on King Street, who is not there at the time. We ended up with 12 offers in the first round and our offers were in the range of 6.5 to 7.3 million. Then we did a second round and the offers were in the 7.5 to $8 million range. So four months after the other buyer had offered 6 million, that same buyer paid 8 million for the property <laughs> through a process that you know, protected the building owner and drove the value for her. So that was a really fun transaction just because, you know, at the end of the day, she was, you know, very appreciative of the work we did and just said, listen, I always knew this building was worth more. I just didn't know how to do that. 
And so by way of our process um, and talking to all the major buyers, she was able to actually get the pricing she wanted. So that was a really fun transaction. It ended up being a great buy for the developer as well. They put in this excellent tenants called Borrow today. They leased the entire building, the time for you know very high rates, and it's one of the staples on King Street now. And it's really fun to sit there and look at that building and remember, you know, when I was selling that building, there were mountains of clothes that were sitting there doing nothing, and the roof was almost caving in. And we, I actually did tours on the building where we would climb this mountain of clothes to get to the rooftop, to the ladder, and then walk onto the roof and look over the site. And we did about, I remember this, because I was doing the tours myself, and we had roughly, I think, 15 tours. And every time we're climbing up this mountain of clothes, and the clothes, just to be sure, was starter jackets from like the early 80s and 90s um, that had all these different NFL teams on them and all the different like hockey teams. And so it just they had all these excess clothes they didn't sell. And it had formed this giant, giant, you know, hill in the back of the building. And instead of using a ladder, we're just like, oh, we'll just climb up this. So I'm up there with like we're talking public companies, REITs, executives, they're climbing up this mountain of, of clothes to get the rooftop and to come on and look at the building. So it was a pretty fun transaction, well, and I'll I, never forget that. I think it's a, a great story, and I think that's a, kind of a great one to end this on because I think it shows everything from your honest persistence, which I think is a lot about your personality, to the process that you go through actually selling these. I mean, the way you brought value to that is, is pretty incredible. To the kind of more gritty side of the business and you know going through these buildings not all flying around on helicopters going building to building yeah. but uh you know really getting getting in there um so i really appreciate i really appreciate it and i really appreciate your time jeremiah this was really an, a fantastic conversation thank you very much oh thank you matt and it's always a pleasure to see your own career and what you've done from buzz buzz home to livable you know, it's it's incredible to see how the business has evolved. And, you know, certainly what you're doing with Zonda and Livable is, you know, incredible tracking of the market and ensuring that all the developers have access to all sorts of digital marketing. Maybe we'll see land value, land next. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Thanks, Jeremiah. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Livable Launch, your go-to podcast for all things condo and new home launches. We hope today's episode has given you valuable insights into the exciting world of real estate development and the minds behind these remarkable projects. We're incredibly grateful to our esteemed guests and our dedicated listeners like you who continue to make this podcast a success. Remember, Livable Launch is here to keep you informed, inspired, and engaged with the ever-evolving landscape of condo and new home developments. We value your feedback and want to ensure that Livable Launch remains your trusted source of information. So don't hesitate to reach out. Remember, we're all in this exciting journey together. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on our website or social media platforms. And if you're a builder industry expert who wants to share your expertise and be featured on our show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear about your latest projects, launches, and insights. Thank you again for joining us on Livable Launch. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Stay up to date with the latest condo, and new home launches, trends, and insider knowledge. Until next time, keep building, dreaming, and exploring the world of real estate. Remember, Livable Launch is here to guide you for every step of the way. I'm Matthew Slutsky, and this is Livable Launch signing off. Happy building, and see you soon.